Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Tempered through fire, all survivors possess wisdom and grit. Reclaim power and revel in life. I'm Kelsey Harper. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a survivor and clinical psychologist, and this is The Initiated Survivor. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Welcome back to Initiated Survivor, everyone. So this is part two of the trauma recovery stages um, episodes. And so last time we spoke a little bit about what we would see is the progression through emotional tone that someone experiences as they recover from trauma. And I talked also in the intro to that about how when we see these stage theories that we almost think of them more like a flower blossoming in many ways, you know, like especially one that has, has so many petals where you just see this continued unfolding and layers upon layers of, of petals that rather than it being a linear stage going from stage one to stage two to stage three and never returning to these previous phases, it's almost saying like there's the outer petals that as we go through them, the flower continues to blossom and more petals are revealed and that it continues to blossom, more petals are revealed, but all of the petals still are a part of the flower and a part of the experience. Um, And at different times, we're going to be experiencing different shades of that. And so we're going into now the stages of recovery, according to Judith Herman. And What we're talking about here is generally what we see in any kind of recovery process, whether, again, that's an intentional process that we take with uh, mental health care, uh, with different types of recovery, um, treatment interventions, that kind of thing, or ones that we unintentionally take that we find that these these stages are pretty consistent. And so they were developed more from an observational standpoint of what we have observed and seen people experience as part of recovery from trauma that facilitates being able to get to a place of feeling from a victim to a survivor, you know, from, from many people on, on my podcast, you hear them talk about from, from surviving to thriving, um, that moving through that is going through this type of recovery process. So again, we're talking more about about ways that these stages inform each other and how we continue to process each at any given time. Those three stages are establishing safety, remembrance and mourning, and integration and reconnection. And that we believe that all are active at all times, right? These petals are part of the same flower, even when we might be focusing primarily on one over the other. For example, we believe that establishing safety must come first because we need to have safety physically, emotionally, in our environment and in ourselves in order to do and experience safely the rest of the work that we have to do for recovery. But we would also say that safety and and establishing safety is just something that we're always going to visit throughout our lives. Similar with remembrance and mourning, reconnection and integration. As we're establishing safety, we're already taking some steps towards reconnecting to ourselves, reconnecting towards a greater world, integrating more understanding of our experiences, our symptoms, that kind of thing. 
In later episodes, I'm going to share about specific interventions, specific therapeutic modalities, and I'll talk about how they fit into this model and how those modalities utilize different stages of this model in different ways. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the stages of recovery, understanding again, we have the stages of emotional tone that we see happen. The stages of recovery are very similar in the sense that we would say that there's this primary focus that's going on. It is going to seem linear, but we also see that every stage is going to be present all at once at any given time, that they move together very um, well and that they're always going to be present. But that one may be a primary focus at any at the time that that we're focusing on them. So the first thing, and this is the part that comes from the Judith Herman book, Trauma and Recovery, and is based on that. The first stage that we see that people experience as part of recovery from trauma is establishing safety. And this is something that we would say, whether you're entering therapy, wherever you are in your recovery, this is always going to be the first thing that we check in on. We as in therapists, we as in ourselves as survivors is looking at safety. This comes back to also one of my my assumptions, 10 assumptions about survivors, that all survivors are living every day, assessing the need for safety and establishing it and seeking it um, in every moment that they're in. This is just a part of surviving trauma. Our body is shaped to now be assessing for safety. And if you've developed post-traumatic stress disorder like I did, That means that actually your brain is stuck in a place of feeling like it is still in danger, despite that it is not in danger, and that that prolonged um, experience of the fight, flight, or freeze system is actually having now lasting effects on how the world is perceived and experienced, and safety being a key part of that. Now, one of the things that we talk about here, safety is is represented in a couple of ways. There's what we think of as external safety, and this is like safety in our surroundings and just real practical things that we do to establish safety and internal safety, like safety with being able to experience our emotions, being able to tolerate going through, you know, processing painful memories, all of that kind of thing. Now, What I typically do with clients and what I think is really important to focus on first with everybody is actually external safety in the sense that if somebody is not living in a safe space, if they are still in a harmful or threatening relationship, if there is still trauma happening around them, there is no other work to do. It would not be helpful to them or their body or the situation to be doing any other kind of internal work until that safety has been established. And that can be things like being able to get to a safe space to live or to stay for a while, being able to have access to financial resources, um, to having basic needs met like food and shelter and safety 
and being able to get physical rest, being in a place where that is something that is possible for them. These are all things that are very important as part of external safety. And in the case when I meet with somebody where external safety is not established, that's something that we continue to focus on is how to mobilize into creating some physical safety in the outside world so that they can be able to move forward with the life that they're wanting to live. The next one is internal safety. And internal safety is being able to stay grounded and present in your body and in your mind. So when we think of somebody having a lack of internal safety, this can be expressed or exhibited or shown to us by um, someone being very emotionally dysregulated, or this is looking like emotions are overwhelming and out of control. We're feeling very flooded. We're dysregulated, distressed, um, and in crisis. This can also look like intense amounts of dissociation, feeling checked out, which on the outside actually looks very quiet or just looks as though somebody is not entirely present. When somebody feels like they have lost a certain amount of control or governance over their choices or their actions that they're engaging on in the world, or if there's like certain topics that tend to make them retreat, you know, obviously they tend to be triggering topics or triggering emotions, sensations, or experiences that do that. This can also be expressed with trauma symptoms, having intrusive memories and flashbacks, having um, hyperarousal or feeling always on guard to a certain extent is going to is going to display the sense of lack of safety. And so working on internalized safety is finding a way to regulate emotions, to feel centered and grounded, to manage coping and soothing painful emotions. And this can also include having to tolerate them. And so when I say tolerate, that doesn't necessarily mean like you're totally flooded. That's okay. Just get through it. It actually tolerating emotions means that we actually do certain things like do different skills, get certain supports in place so that the distress level that we're experiencing or the pain level of the emotion, the acuity of it is much lower enough for us to be able to get through it okay without engaging in any kind of harmful behavior or feeling like our life has to be completely put on hold in some way shape or form that's one way that we establish internal safety other ways is that we teach skills to help stay present and grounded so dissociation doesn't happen being able to be mindful of what the indicators of losing mindfulness, being going into dissociative episodes is really powerful at establishing internal safety as well. And that this can look like in therapy sessions, like for example, with EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, we start with what we call uh, resourcing. And resourcing is a set of skills um, that you're taught as a client that you're going to use not only to establish that internal safety of regulate your emotions, be able to feel comfortable and confident being in this space, um, but it actually facilitates the healing and staying within what we call the window of tolerance, which is that space where you might feel emotionally uncomfortable and activated, but not overwhelmed and not flooded. 
so still actively engaged in the process. These resources help establish a sense of safety. We would also say that light, very, very light exposure from cognitive behavior therapy and prolonged exposure therapy, we're looking at light exposures happening at this phase. And light exposure means that like very minimal exposure to the traumatic event is happening. What this looks like is us talking about what does trauma do to the brain? And when we talk about that, when we're providing psychoeducation, uh, when we're talking about what trauma is, when somebody is saying something like, yes, I was assaulted, yes, I was raped, uh, when we talk about, well, when the rape happened, these symptoms occurred, this is exposing the brain to activating stimuli, usually in a low-risk and minimal way. And sometimes those low-risk, minimal exposures can actually start to habituate the brain to some of this activating stimuli, create a little bit of a basis of safety. Sometimes talking about those things are also overwhelming, and so we have to slow that down. Um, and again, come back to what are the skills that we can use to, to stay present, mindful, and grounded, um, and regulated. What we're going to see is that all throughout trauma recovery, we will always come back to safety in a variety of ways. That is part of recovering from trauma. It will activate our different experiences around issues with safety, around trying to seek and establish safety, um, and around whether or not there's any threats to that safety. Part of recovering from trauma is building this knowledge base uh, that we've now acquired whether we want to or not, we've acquired this knowledge base around the danger that actually exists in the world. Safety will always be present in that. As we start to also take on more complex tasks in our life, they will be through the perspective and lens of safety. Like, for example, re-engaging in relationships, that's going to bring up issues of safety, whether those are romantic relationships, partners um, and partnerships, sexual relationships, friendships and family relationships, as well as professional relationships or educational relationships, or just our relationship with the community at large, safety will always be an issue there. And we will always come back to, to establish that because we will have skills for that. We won't necessarily be primarily focusing on that. And this is also the safety skills create a foundation for us to do the next few things. The next stage of recovery that we enter as survivors is remembrance and mourning, retelling of the experience, and shaping our narrative. And in therapy, this, this could be done from a number of approaches. This can be done from exposure-based approaches where someone is reciting what happened to them over and over and over, habituating the brain to it so that it no longer reacts to it as dangerous stimuli. Um, this is also an EMDR when you're doing active processing of the memory. This can also be in narrative therapy where you're, you're creating a narrative or essentially a storyline, a beginning, middle, and end, a plot line of what happened and how does that connect to my larger narrative as a person. And so the remembrance and mourning phase, um, the retelling of the trauma in many modalities and what research is actually showing us that this does not necessarily require us actually verbally out loud reciting what happened. That remembrance and mourning actually can be done in a number of different ways um, that can actually feel much more 
intuitive and instinctual. And so what I mean by that intuitive means to kind of go with what feels right. So for example, somatic experiencing, the remembrance and mourning is about coming back and connecting back into body sensations and urges to move and and awakening certain body parts that may have been affected by that trauma or holding certain trauma um, experiences in the tissues and being able to release and move through those and to carry out the response that we would expect to see um, in order to resolve it. That remembrance and mourning doesn't have to be a re-experiencing um, and it actually doesn't require doing a verbal retelling. People also do this in a variety of different ways, sometimes very naturally and instinctually, like creating music or art about what they went through, telling stories, sharing with other people what happened to them, um, starting to connect in with other survivors and talking about what rape is. Like All of these are things that we're starting to piece together what happened to us, and we are starting to understand this experience and this narrative of what happened to us and how it fits in to who we are, how we fit in with this narrative, with the greater narrative of everyone as a whole. And remembrance and mourning is this place of allowing ourselves to observe and see what happened. It's almost as though we are looking at ourselves and saying, I see your injuries. I see the harm. I know what you have survived. And I'm so sorry that you had to. And that's the mourning piece is the sadness and the loss. We can also see that mourning is also going to come with rage and dissociation or denial or bargaining of like, well, maybe it wasn't that bad, you know, since XYZ happened or since I feel like this, then maybe it wasn't that bad. Um, that we may go through all of those traditional stages of grief as well as part of our trauma recovery, that it's normal to experience all of those things as we're starting to take account of what happened to us and emotionally and spiritually and psychologically understand what this was that happened. And this is the space where having a therapist can actually be really effective or at least having somebody who can facilitate a process for you. I highly recommend licensed mental health pro professionals because they are specifically trained in how to manage and address trauma safely. That there are definitely a number of trauma experts, quote unquote, or um, trauma coaches, um, sometimes even calling themselves trauma counselors out in the world that are offering one-on-one -on -one services this does not mean that they're actually going to be a safe, supportive person to facilitate a remembrance and mourning, and they may actually put you at risk of what we call re-traumatization. And this is something also that um, therapeutic methods have had to address and come to grips with about the risks that's involved in those. For example, many um, high exposure type of interventions also have a high re-traumatization rate or a high attrition rate where people drop out of therapy or they experience re-traumatization because the exposure actually still overwhelms the system. This is when safety comes back as a real issue because when there is not established safety, our body is going to launch into its survival mechanisms when we start to go back through our trauma that happened. 
but that we find that actually practices that engage either moderate or minimal exposure while still some processing of painful experiences, um, and this is like EMDR, somatic experiencing narrative therapy, that we actually see that risk of re-traumatization go down and reduce, especially when it is paired with establishing a ton of those safety skills. And you have a trained professional who knows how to recognize the signs of emotional overwhelm of your system getting overloaded and flooded and can start to uh scale back what's what's being experienced so that people can continue with their work safely. But remembrance and mourning is ultimately this process of telling your story, being able to share what happened, but facing that first as yourself, that this is what happened to me and going through the grief that that naturally is going to bring up. This stage can be a very long time. It can be a very brief time. It just is what it is. And I would say that most commonly, this is the one that we're going to visit often throughout our lives when something triggering happens, when somebody who knew the perpetrator either comes back into our life or something happens in their life or they pop up on our social media feeds. We're going to come back to some of the remembrance in the morning uh, when we reflect upon how our life may have taken a turn because this happened, you know, that can bring back some remembrance and mourning. Some of the losses that we have to mourn is what we thought life was going to be or what trajectory it might have been on or what people promised us life was going to be. There are many survivors who their assault started from the very beginning of their lives. And so they're not mourning something that was lost that they used to have. They might be mourning the loss of something that they were told was supposed to happen to them, that they were supposed to be met with a lot of safety and comforting and nurturance, that the world was not supposed to be harming them out the gate. And so there might be a lot of mourning around that, mourning around the caregivers they were supposed to have, um, mourning the community that didn't show up for them when they really needed support and safety. These are all things that we we experience going through this. I know for me, my my mourning has to do a lot with a loss of my sense of self. There is definitely a dramatic change um, that happened as part of developing PTSD. It just it definitely felt like my brain just full on misaligned and was firing very differently, experiencing and perceiving the world very differently, and I wasn't completely in tune with my sense of self or things that I that were important to me or things that I wanted to be doing were just not possible. Things like, for example, being creative, connecting with deeply with relationships that mattered to me, experiencing a sense of purpose and meaning in the world. This was just not something I my brain was capable of. And there was a lot of grief and mourning around that and a lot of sadness that somebody dared to enter my life and to take advantage of the care that I was offering them and use that space to totally obliterate me and my life. And there's a lot of grief and mourning and rage around that as well. What I've also noticed and, and recently spoke about with my therapist was this sense that my recovery process actually put me more in touch with who I was and who I am than I ever was even before I was assaulted, that 
by recovering from this and all of the work that it pulled me into, the recovery process, all the different things that I tried out in order to feel a little bit more helped, healed, better, well, calm, just a little bit okay. All of those different things actually led me more deeply to my sense of self in ways that I didn't touch before. And oftentimes because I didn't really need to do that exploration. This kind of trauma hadn't happened to me. But so in this experience, there definitely was something that was gifted as part of it. That's not always everybody's experience of recovery, that sometimes recovery is very long, it's very painful. And for many people, it is about just simply surviving day to day with really tough, painful experiences and symptoms. Remembrance and mourning is, is the place where we go to to take account of what we went through and what we experienced with love and compassion and respect for ourselves and a lot of holding and nurturing and comforting of ourselves and our injuries through that and seeing ourselves exactly as we are in that moment and holding space for that. The next phase that we move into after that is reconnection and integration and ultimately this we first kind of see like what we think of as integration which is starting to think of ourselves like coming back to the integrity of ourselves in the sense of feeling that ourselves are whole again that we are one complete and entire person and we are more grounded in who in our sense of self and who we are that we feel a little bit more clear and that we are essentially whole with including the trauma that happened to us or the traumas that happened to us. And so integration is this space of how we reconnect back to our personal values, our goals, and look at how those may have shifted as a part of surviving this trauma and recovering from the trauma. And part of the integration phase is acknowledging those shifts, maybe revisiting a little bit of the grief that some values have changed or been released and some values are now taking priority, um, that there's certain ways of being that might be very different about who we are and coming back into how we fully know and understand ourselves. And this is also a space where we think of like integration being a place where the process of resolving the trauma feels very fluid that, you know, we understand the story as part of our life story. We understand what happened, you know, kind of like beginning, middle and end of this, you know, and how, how it kind of feeds into where we are now. And this doesn't necessarily mean that you have no feelings about your trauma or your history, or that you're just a-okay with it. It also doesn't necessarily mean that you're just moving on from it. I think that's one of the things that can be um, very tricky about our culture is that most things like that happen to us, we reach a resolution stage and, and ultimately, quote unquote, let it go or just move on. Right. You know, but trauma is very different because of the way that it affects our brain and totally transforms our lives. And that's not something that we just let go of or we just move on from. And so a resolution or a fluid resolution means that there's this kind of total experience of acceptance or, you know, radical acceptance, as we know, 
um, as it exists in the sense that I know and understand what has happened to me and I accept that it has happened to me. I also know and understand how it affected me and impacted my life and I accept that it has impacted my life. And I also am in this space of accepting that my relationship with my story, with what happened to me, is going to change. It's going to evolve. I'm going to continue to grow, to heal, to recover, have setbacks, have feelings about this, and that I'm going to continue to move forward with this. And that integration is that phase of really bringing ourselves back to ourselves and feeling feeling more into ourselves. And I know for me, I think that there's been many stages where I felt like, okay, now I'm back. Okay, now I feel I feel here. I feel present. I feel like myself is in this body and, and is in this world. And then I reach another stage and I'm like, whoa, 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 this is so much more me. This is so much more center. This is so much more grounded. I'm so much more here. And then again, you know, I get to another place and I'm like, oh my gosh, now I'm even more here. And so I do think that the integration or even maybe in a way is, is like an opening that we continue to open more and more and more and more of ourselves gets to be expressed and present in our day-to-day lives as we continue to move through this. I also think that integration is something that we continue to work on. We also might revisit with different trauma work as triggers come up. We may feel ourselves, you know, kind of get to a place of a little bit of misalignment and have to you know, revisit some of the remembrance and mourning, revisit some safety, and then come back into integrating again. As we learn more about some of these things and how they affected us and how they affect our world, especially, integration becomes a key phase for us to really understand ourselves as we link into a bigger picture. And that's when we move into reconnection. Reconnection is an important phase because we see just very practically how isolating PTSD and trauma is. Um, That is, somebody is experiencing that and day to day just trying to manage their symptoms of feeling like their brain has lost kind of its control or functioning. um, That oftentimes they isolate from others. The other is is that oftentimes. We feel like we're at such risk and we're in so much danger or we're so stressed or we're so, so anxious and always, always so tired, just so, so tired of everything that we have no room for relationships. And so reconnection is a place of coming back into those relationships and really is a key phase. Humans were were and are social creatures, like in our instincts and in the animals that we are are meant to be social creatures. And so there's also instinctual experiences around socialization and connection. Um, In fact, our brain is set up to feel more at peace with the world and more connected when we are in relationships. This doesn't necessarily mean that you need to rush out and make all of these friends and make all of these plans. It's about reconnecting in a way that again is in alignment with who you are and your values, something that's happening around the integration. Who am I and how do I do relationships now? One of the ways that safety pops up in this place is by evaluating boundaries. You know, what do I do with relationships now that I have this experience and this knowledge? 
Um, and that this experience and this knowledge is not just about that. Sometimes people do dangerous things and I have to, you know, assess danger and risk as much as I possibly can. But also that looking at, I now am a part of a community that the greater community or the greater world seeks to silence and to shut down and even in some ways thinks is a disposable part of our society. And people who suffer trauma, PTSD, mental illness, or rape and sexual assault or sexual violence are just people that, that don't matter nearly as much as, you know, a white athlete's career or a white man's political agenda and also that the way in which that doubting survivors is just running so rampant, we are constantly coming into contact with a culture that really is denying and pushing us aside. And so part of boundaries is around how do we develop relationships in that world? Some of those boundaries might be around that, you know, we no longer are friends with people who don't believe survivors or who continue to engage in rape culture type of principles and refuse to examine those. And I know that's definitely something that's happened to me is that as I continue to um, recover through this, I was noticing that that was one of the things that my anger really never came down from. And it still really doesn't is when people doubt survivors. And I think that anger is very justified. That anger is telling me that this is somebody I need to have a boundary around. This is somebody who is blocking a goal of mine. And my goal being, you know, for me to be able to reclaim a place in our culture of somebody who matters and also to change our culture to create a much safer um, and healthy space for everyone. And if somebody is doubting survivors, they are absolutely directly and deliberately interfering with that goal. And so I know for me, some of those boundaries have been like, we're not friends anymore. That relationship is over. But for other things, it might be looking at how do I engage with people around this? Am I going to have the rape culture conversation with every single person I encounter? Maybe that's in alignment with my values. And also maybe do I have enough energy around that? Is that how I want to be engaging? How do I move forward with my relationships in a way that's true to myself and honors myself and respects myself? And that's all about how safety comes up from reconnection. I also think reconnection is also a way that we reconnect ourselves back into like the greater web of life. And the greater web of life is like acknowledging that we have a larger world, a world filled with other survivors, a world filled with other people, with other animals, other beings. And that trauma actually completely isolates and ostracizes us from that web of life. I know for me, I felt incredibly disconnected with pretty much everything that I felt like I was completely separate from all things in life, like completely separate from like nature and forces of nature, completely separate from other people, you know, in my life, even ones I had close relationships with, completely separate from the way that the world exists. And reconnection is a way of us weaving ourselves back in as we are. Um, and some of that is about like reclaiming our story, reclaiming our lives, reclaiming our relationships, speaking our truth by presenting ourselves to our world in a way and allowing ourselves in the world to discuss and figure out how we're going to fit into that web. 
And so I think with many of my guests, they demonstrate something similar to what I feel too, which is this drive and this passion to share my truth, right? Which is the Angelina way of like sharing our story, what's real, what's true for us about who we are, right? Sharing my story. And to a certain extent, that includes radically accepting that people are going to respond to that story, however they respond, and that I am choosing to hold that story. I am choosing to hold that story as absolute truth for myself, that I can tolerate that other people may disagree or may not be willing to hear it or may be crumpled by it or turn away from it. But in order for me to feel truly woven into the web of life, I have to present myself exactly as I am. Otherwise, if I present a fake self, a false self, or a tolerable self, a palatable self, then I'm not truly woven in. They've just woven in someone they imagine me to be. But that also helps me understand where do I fit? Where do I want to be? And I find that I'm woven quite tightly in with other survivors, with other people who understand what trauma survivorship looks like, allies who are also working hard to change the world and dismantle some of these systems of oppressive power that use violence as a way of reinforcing, reinforcing, enabling, and assuring their power. Those are all the people that I weave in quite nicely. And those are also all the people that I want to weave into. And that part of reconnection is also the more deeply we connect to our personal values and how that translates into what we are performing and providing for the world. So, for example, most survivors, many survivors really do feel a calling um, to seek some sort of public justice that can sometimes be specifically about the perpetrator who attacked them, but it also can actually be more in general of we're working to change the world and real justice, restorative justice, reconnective justice. And and I know that for me, that definitely drove why I decided to do this podcast, why I'm trying to build a community of powerful survivors working together to build recovery and working together to change the world is because of this sense of purpose or calling of that now that I am through the hardest part of that, I want to make sure that I find a way to make that easier for everyone that's coming after me because I know there are so many people coming after me. And because I know that, I also have to do whatever I can to make it so that that amount of people gets less and less and eventually becomes none eventually I want there to be no people that come after me. Well, right now I want there to be no people that come after me. I'm accepting that it's going to take some time to get there. But that this is also a part of reconnection, that reconnecting to the greater web of life, to our larger communities, requires us to be able to really stand in knowing ourselves truly as we are and offering ourselves up. This is what I have for you. This is what I want to do for my contribution to this greater web. And you'll hear from all of my guests that that is part of what brought them onto the show, onto this podcast, is that they want to share their story and that sharing our stories, right? That remembrance and mourning phase, even when we're no longer actively in that remembrance and mourning phase, every time we share our stories, it is healing and reparative for us. 
but it also is healing and reparative to feel like we are being heard and we're being seen and we're being held exactly as we are and we're being allowed to stand exactly as we are in this space. And also, it is incredibly reparative and powerful to feel and to know that we're taking steps towards helping others. And we know that telling our stories is helping others because hearing other people's stories helped us. And that's also part of this reconnection and integration. In summary, essentially, the recovery process is one that's not linear. It's not a straight line. It's not even a squiggly line like all those diagrams like to joke about. Like it kind of is just all like these different phases that we see or almost like these different shades that enter our life, different seasons of our life that we experience where we're going to be creating more safety for ourselves, moving into allowing ourselves to really feel the pain of what happened and to accept it, acknowledge it and accept it and honor our pain and respect our pain and move into how to reconnect back into our communities into ourselves with all of these different emotional processes as well knowing that all three of these stages work well together and will continue to surface in all areas of our lives that even when we're in this process of reconnection which I also believe is going to be a lifelong process that the more and more that we weave ourselves in with ourselves and to others and to our greater world we're always going to be finding ways to weave in more and more, more threads that we connect to, more relationships that we connect to, more purposes that we connect to. As soon as we feel like we've completed a mission, a new one blossoms before us and connects us to a new network and a new web, that all of these stages are going to come up. The important message to take away from this is that recovery is always possible no matter what place you are in it that you can always start again, that you can go back to any place in that recovery that you feel needs attention. And that recovery is also not something that is kept behind some sort of gate that you have to qualify to achieve. Recovery is happening whether you try or not try. Understand that a lot of your instincts after trauma are really about keeping you safe. And that if you have to take some time and take some space and just take care of yourself, that is also effective and sufficient recovery. And that there's time down the road to repair anything that needs to be repaired and to weave back in and reconnect. And we're all here wrapping ourselves around you and holding space for you, whether you know it or not. And I think that it's also important to understand that While there's some of these processes that are very well facilitated by mental health um, services, I think this is part of why it's so important for us to keep working towards creating equal and easy access to mental health services. We do not have that right now. And so it does feel and it is truly a way that recovery is kept or locked behind a gate for only those who have the resources. And we really do need to change that. There are many ways that people can engage in recovery. I'm going to cover a lot of different options, a lot of different skills that you can try, as well as a lot of different methods that you can try, techniques or interventions, different experts you can connect to with that will also help you on your recovery journey. 
Thank you so much for being here today and please take with you the message that you can start recovery at any time and restart and restart and restart. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that RAIN is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at RAIN at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all-around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.